Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. Today, we are looking at the book of Job, the book of Job, and discovering what it is that God has for us in there. And uh, And I think the main theme we're going to walk away with today is that there are some answers that you'll never get in this life that uh, God is not obligated to answer our questions, and uh, we need to embrace that in reverent worship of His holy, mysterious will. How's that for an overarching view of what we're going to learn today? Well, um, the book of Job is, is an interesting book. A lot of people seem to think it's the first book that's written in the Bible, that it was even before Moses, and that's possible. You'll notice in the book of Job, there's no mention of Israel, there's no mention of Abraham or the fathers, uh, I don't believe there's any mention of circumcision, and so it seems as though Job is writing, uh, or the book of Job was written during a time before those items were irrelevant. Uh, let me just do a quick search, because now I'm curious. Uh, I usually try to be very, very formal with these, as you know, and I you know, don't like to... Uh, to break the formality. But let's see if the word circumcision or circumcise is in the book of Job. I just want to be sure because I mentioned it. Okay, circumcision in the New American Standard only comes up twice in the Old Testament, once in Genesis and once in Exodus. That's kind of weird. Circumcise, the verb, comes up 28 times in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Jeremiah. Okay. Safe to say, the word circumcise or circumcision does not come up in the New American Standard Bible in the book of Job. All right, I feel better about that now. And many people know the basic plot of the book of Job, so it's likely very early written. And the basic plot, of course, is that there's a man named Job who has a bunch of terrible, terrible things happen in his life, and he learns some lessons through it all about God's uh, sovereign goodness, you could say. Uh, a big chunk of the letter is him getting counsel from his friends. His friends are generally unwise, but like with all unwise counsel that's out there, there are always bits of truth that are sprinkled in. And so you do see some of that in the counsel that Job receives from his friends. But uh, the end of the letter of Job is really incredible, uh, chapters 38 to the end, and, and we'll get to that eventually here in today's lesson. But uh, let's start by looking at the dramatic irony of Job. Dramatic irony is a literary device when someone's writing a short story or a play where the audience knows something that the character in the story does not know. And that's what's going on here at the beginning of the book of Job is we're getting a peek behind the curtain and we're seeing what leads up to all of the devastation in Job's life. And Job is not privy to this, but we as the readers are. So let's start with Job chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, sons of God in the Old Testament often refers to angelic beings, and that is clearly what's in view here. The angelic beings were presenting themselves before Yahweh the Lord, and Satan was among them. Now, Okay, now I have to pause. I have to pause again. I have to break the formality once more. 
even though there is no mention of Israel or the patriarchs or circumcision, there is mention of the divine name Yahweh, also known as the Tetragrammaton. It's Lord in all caps in the Bible. Uh, when you see Lord in all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, or you could say Jehovah. Lord, that's not all caps, is Adonai, and the word for God is Elohim. So uh, it does have this divine name that was disclosed to Moses at the burning bush, which is very interesting. So again, the timing is dubious. Some say it was before Moses, some say after Moses. All right, thought I should make that note. We'll leave it at that. You have the angelic beings presenting themselves before Yahweh, and Satan is among them. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Lots to pick up on there. A basic thing that we can pick up on is... Uh, the limited scope of Satan's domain. Now, Satan was free to roam about on the earth and to walk on the earth. The Lord asked him, where have you been? Did the Lord not know where Satan was? No, of course the Lord knew. But uh, this is in the text, this dialogue is happening here to expose something, uh, to expose the quality of the earth, where Satan is free to roam about, to teach us what Satan does, Satan's activity, that he exercises some presence on the face of the earth. But we see that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not in multiple places at one time. He, when he roams about on the earth, he's doing so as a limited being. Uh, we see here Satan scheming against Job. God brings up Job and says, uh, have, you, have you considered him, Satan? And God, of course, knows if Satan has or has not considered Job. And you'd have to wonder, was Job, like, famous at this time? If this was before Moses' time, it would be very interesting to try to think about how many people were on the face of the earth at this time. You know, right now, there's, what, 7 billion? Back then, a much smaller number. It was a lot easier to be world famous back then, in a sense, because there weren't very many people, but you also couldn't communicate with people around the world as easily, so who knows. But here Job is, like, talked about by God. Job is brought up by God to Satan. And Job has no idea. Can you imagine being the subject of a conversation between the Lord and Satan? And the Lord brought you up. Just last night, we had a Bible study here on Wednesday night. Uh, I, I record these ahead of time, so I don't know what day you'll be seeing this. But it was a Wednesday night Bible study. And when we went out into the lobby, I saw the guy who was on security for the night, who was in our security booth. And I said, uh, hey, we, we, we were talking about you in there. <laughs> Your name came up a few times. And, you know, the, the standard joke, like, oh, I hope it was good or whatever, yada, yada, yada. Can you imagine Satan 
coming to you and saying, yeah, God was talking about you. Whoa, that's pretty wild. Maybe I'll come back to that thought toward the end. But okay, Satan and God were having a conversation, and God brings up Job. Satan schemes against Job by saying, well, of course Job fears you and serves you and is an example of godliness because he hasn't faced any hardship. You've blessed him. Have you thought about taking away the blessing and seeing if he really still actually loves you? Here we're learning that Satan is not all-knowing because uh, if he was all-knowing, this wouldn't have to happen to Job. But instead, this does have to happen to Job, so Satan can, can learn the lesson here. And, uh, and Satan is given authority by God to act in Job's life in such a way that will harm him. Okay, so let's look at that again. I already read it. The Lord's, this is verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has, all that Job has, is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So here we see that Satan, any power that he has, is given to him by God and defined by God and limited by God and can be revoked by God at any time. Satan is a very limited being. God is an unlimited, infinite being. Satan is a creature. God is the creator. And Job here is, it seems, caught in between the two. But, um, but don't start thinking that God and Satan are having some eternal battle and they're equal beings, good versus evil, yin-yang kind of stuff. God created Satan. God has authority over Satan. God knew what Satan would do. God knew how all of history would play out before he created one thing. And this is all a part of God's plan. And so this isn't like some eternal struggle or anything like that. This is the plan of God unfolding the eternal will of God that exists outside of time playing out within time. Okay, so much to see, so much to say. Let's just keep reading. Verse 13. Now on the day when Job's sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Here's the work of Satan. He was able to cause some weather events with the wind, he um, was able to cause some like supernatural weather events with fire raining down from the sky. He was able to get two different groups of people, seemingly at the same time from the text, two different groups of people to attack in two different ways and have two different effects in Job's life. That is pretty powerful. Now, remember, his power and authority has come from God, and it is limited 
or extended based on God's will. But this is what Satan is doing. He is affecting, impacting deeply Job's life. And Satan is about to discover, along with us, the readers, if Job's faith will stand even amid this great trial. And I don't have to tell you how devastating all of this would be for somebody. I mean, Job's life is being destroyed, crumbling spontaneously in a moment out of nowhere. Would his faith stand? Maybe some of you have been through that. I have gone through some life-changing stuff. I mean, there's one particular day, June 22nd, 2006, where my entire life changed. It was kind of like this, where Satan's hand was allowed to affect me in a very life-altering way. Well, let's look at Job's response and see if there's any faith. Verse 20, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The writer of the book makes this comment after that quote from Job, saying, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now that is truly incredible, that Job, despite all of those things that was happening in his life, all at once, all the devastation, all the terror, all the dread, all the loss, he had a perspective on this saying, Blessed be God's name. He gives, he takes away, and he didn't blame God for any of it. All right. Well, the story continues, and it gets more interesting. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, read angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 3, Yahweh, the Lord, said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So Job here now is being personally affected. Before, there was nothing that happened to Job's body, but now uh, Satan believes that if stuff happens to his body, then he's going to cave and he's going to curse God, and Satan is going to win him to his side. So Job is here with boils and ashes, scraping himself with pottery. And let's continue. Verse 9, Job's wife said to him, 
Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Great wife. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. That's kind of a worded interestingly. He's calling her a fool. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wow. Well, let's finish chapter two, three more verses. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they each came, one from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, or Shuhite, rather, and Zophar the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe, and they drew or they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. I love this, verse 13. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Yeah, I'd imagine. They saw that his pain was very great. He was not uh, able to conceal his pain, Job. And... Uh, to add insult to injury, he has this wife who's giving him terrible advice, who's not encouraging him in the Lord at all, but encouraging him to curse God and just die. That is miserable. That is, that is human misery right there, isn't it? Job was in pain. He had lost so much, his body ailing, and he didn't have any answers. Now, the text tells us both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 that he did not sin. He didn't curse God. He didn't do it. He kept his integrity. He kept his faith. He was still hanging on to Yahweh. But boy, was he in misery. He was in absolute misery. And what you have now is a very, very long section of the book where these three friends who came and sat with him in silence for seven days, they begin to speak. And again, their counsel is mostly poor. There's some good stuff mixed in here and there, but generally speaking, the counsel is poor. And you don't have God showing up to speak into this situation until the end of the book. And that happens in chapter 38. That's where we see God appearing in the book uh, again. So chapter 38, verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And on and on and on Yahweh goes, challenging Job to explain to him how the world was created and how all the creatures of the earth intermingle and how it all works. Now, this might strike you as interesting because Job wanted to know why, I'm sure. Out of all the things that happened to him, he wanted to know why, and his friends tried to explain to him why, why, why. 
this is why God, this happened to you. And bad, they give a bad answer. This is why this happened to you. And they give a bad deduction. Well, Job never learns why. We have more insight than Job ever got. We see the conversation between Yahweh and Satan. And we see what God is doing through Job's life in bringing about glory to himself by having one of his saints refined as by fire and that faith getting stronger through adversity. We, we, we can see that. We can read from the beginning of Job and see things that Job never was able to see. But if you put yourself in Job's spot, take away the book of Job, put yourself in Job's position, living through that, not having the book of Job to turn to, wouldn't you just want to know, why is this happening? Someone explain this to me? Someone make sense of this? Well, God never does that for Job. In God's interaction with Job, he never tells him what was going on. He just challenges Job to consider these things that Job could never figure out. How was the the world created? How does this all work? And you might hear that and think, well, that's not very comforting from God. I mean, shouldn't God come down and put his arm around Job and just sit with him for a while and rub his back and say, ugh, it's tough. It's a tough world world out there. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just never have answers to these types of things. Um, and it's just, it, we're just never going to know uh, why this world is the way it is. And boy, I, I feel bad. I feel bad for you. And just, and just comfort them. You might think, shouldn't, shouldn't God do that? No, no, he shouldn't. What Job needed was to be reminded of the sovereign power the holiness, the eternal justice and goodness, the absolute vindication of God in all things. Not to know all the answers to all the questions that he had, but to know more about the nature of this God who is bringing him through this trial. He needed to rely more upon the attributes of God than his own questions Because getting answers to those questions isn't going to make us feel better. Getting answers to those questions isn't going to actually bring any kind of closure or resolve. We always think that it will, but it doesn't. What gets us through tough times? What gets us through absolute devastation? It's knowing that there is a God in heaven who is not surprised by anything and who is in absolute control over all things, even Satan who is allowed to touch us with his power. God is in control of him. And Job needed to be reminded that God is the one in control, and he has access to God. He can pray to God. He can rely on God. He can move toward God in faith, and God is carrying him through this life, and that is enough when you go back to chapter 1 and Job's response, that was a great response. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's where Job needed to stay. And so God here is reminding him of who he is, the all-powerful creator God. And so this goes on for two chapters, chapters 38 and 39. The Lord is just putting Job on blast. He's questioning him 
with these questions that Job can't answer. And so look at Job's response, chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Even when Job says, there's nothing I can say, I got to put my hand over my mouth and be silent. God continues to ask him, and that goes on even longer. He asks him these questions saying, are you God? The answer, of course, is no. Can you answer these questions? No, I can't. Well, God doesn't owe it to us to answer our questions either. Chapter 42 of Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And the story goes on where the Lord pronounces his judgment against Job's friends who provided bad counsel, and he restores Job's life and gives back Job more than he had before. What's the lesson in all of this? Well, the lesson is God doesn't have to answer our questions, right? God is not obligated to explain to us all the things of this life. The things that the Lord has given, he can take away. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, we are to hold those things with an open hand and say, Lord, these are yours. Your will be done. And move forward in faith. Now, this is much easier said than done, isn't it? It's, it's easy to say, yeah, that's what should happen, and then you go through a really difficult time, and it is hard to do that. And it's hard to do it because of our pride. It's hard to do it because we put expectations on God that are not right. We have bad theology that leads us here sometimes. That's not good. But Job was brought through this, and he was corrected by God. And we can look to our trials, we can look to the difficult times that will come, even though we don't know the details of them, we can look ahead toward the idea of them and say, our God will lead us through, he will carry us through. And if we're open to correction, he will correct us. That's a, that's a very healthy way for us to go about life, isn't it? Now, I, I want to come back to the thought of Job's name being on God's lips, quote-unquote, his lips. 
uh, Job was known by God. And God said to Satan, he's an upright, he's a faithful, good man. Isn't that amazing? Is your name on God's lips? Have you thought about that? What would God say about you if he brought you up in a conversation with Satan? Now, if you look to your own life and the things that you've tried to accomplish for good in the world, you might say, um, yeah, I failed a lot. There have been a lot of swings and misses in my life. There have been a lot of occasions where I have justly deserved punishment from God. I've messed up royally. And that would be a very honest look at your life if you look at your works. Because the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of perfection. That is the glory of God. And if that's the standard, who could stand, right? If, if that is the requirement, who could ever make it into heaven? The answer, of course, is nobody. You will never, ever be able to be good enough for God. Do you hear how condemning that sounds? This is what the law does, isn't it? When we read about the law, God's standard, keep this law and live. I can't do that. No human being can do that. Well, we all are going to die, aren't we? (laughs) And we all deserve spiritual death, don't we? Because we have all of our own will and choice rebelled against our Creator, even though we knew better. Each one of us. No one is exempt from that. So how can we get our name on God's lips in a positive sense? Well, there isn't anything that we can do. But there's someone we can look to who will change our status before God. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We can look to Jesus, not only who he is in his person, God himself, the eternal Son of God. But we also look to his work on earth, that as the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw God exegeted and explained in this divine human, Jesus Christ, we see that he lived a perfect life that we could never live, and he died the death that we deserve on the cross. He did keep the law. He never sinned one time in thought, word, or deed. Yet he died a criminal's death. Didn't deserve it, but he died in our place for our sin. And as we look to Jesus Christ, as we see what he has done on our behalf, and we believe entirely on his work for us, not mixing in our own efforts, Not saying, well, I've done a really, really good job, or I've done a decent job, or I've tried really hard, and where I failed, Jesus makes it up. Not saying that, but saying, not including my own works at all, and only looking to Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection in my place, on my behalf, as we do that, and we lean on his work with the full weight of our trust, Our name on God's lips now becomes a beautiful, hopeful thing. No longer is the Lord speaking condemnation about us as 
we would deserve. But God's justice is fulfilled in the work of Christ, and the sinner who repents and believes in Jesus is now considered absolutely holy because not only does God erase and forgive all of those sins committed against him, but he imputes or transfers to our account the very righteousness of God. We receive the righteousness of God on the basis of the works of Christ. And for now and for always, we are considered by God to be absolutely righteous in his sight. We are no longer darkness, but we are light. We are no longer slaves, but we are heirs. We are children of God through faith. And when the Lord speaks of us in the heavenly realm, he speaks of us in good terms because we are his, we are forgiven, we are eternally counted as righteous in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that helps enliven the book of Job for you. I hope that uh, you learn some things, but above all of that, I, I hope that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that you will be my brother or my sister for all eternity. That's the real eternal family, isn't it? Those who believe in Jesus. Thanks for joining me. If you have any feedback, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. God bless.